0: Let us pray. God and Father, you have brought us safely to the beginning of a new year. And you are the one who gives us new life through your life-giving words. So speak now to us by your Holy Spirit, enliven us. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like uh, to begin this morning with a confession. I did not make any New Year's resolutions this year. Uh, I didn't also make any New Year's resolutions last year. Um, To be completely honest, I can't actually remember the last time I made a serious New Year's resolution. And that hasn't usually bothered me, um, at least up until recently. In the past, I've just sort of written it off as um, just something I'm not really into. You know, it's a matter of taste. Some people really like making resolutions, and I'm just not one of those people. Um, At least that's what I've told myself. But in this past week, I've started to think about it a little bit more. Why is it that I don't like making New Year's resolutions? What is it about them that doesn't appeal to me? It's certainly not because I think I'm perfect or because I'm just so entirely satisfied with my life that I can't find anything I'd like to change. And it's not just because I'm worried if I make a resolution that that I won't be able to keep it. Uh, That is a serious danger. Evidently 43% of people who do make resolutions expect to break them before the beginning of February. One in four people break their New Year's resolution within the first week of January. Only 9% of people, from what I'm told, 9% of people actually succeed in keeping their resolution. And I know myself well enough to know I'm probably not one of that 9%. But that's not why I don't make resolutions. It's not just because I'm worried that I'm gonna fail to achieve the goals I set for myself. No, I think the real reason that I feel hesitant about this New Year's practice is that in order to make resolutions, I have to first make a hard and honest assessment of my own shortcomings. If I'm gonna resolve to change anything, I have to look hard in the mirror at myself and admit that there are some things about me that very much need to change, that I'm not the man I know I should be. That there's a standard of achievement and living that I'm failing to meet. That when it comes to my life, to who I am, and to how I'm living, that things are not how they should be. Because that's what we're saying when we make resolutions, isn't it? Resolutions aren't just aspirations or goals for the year to come, they're also regrets about the year that is past regrets about how we chose to spend our time or money or energy, regrets about not being the kind of friend or the kind of spouse or the kind of parent that we know we're supposed to be, regrets about what we did and what we failed to do. And it's not easy. It's not easy to admit even to yourself It's not easy to admit that another year has gone by and you are still not the person you should be. It's hard to look back on 2022 and be really honest about all of your failures, all of the things you have to regret. At least it's hard for me. And that's part of the reason actually, it's part of the reason why I like the Bible so much. Because the Bible is filled with stories of people who fail and make bad decisions and mess up their lives, and who feel deep, deep regret over what they've done and failed to do. And the Bible also has an answer for people like that. An answer that doesn't just amount to encouragement to try harder next time, or a suggested list of resolutions to make, or a strategy for how to keep them. Nor does the Bible answer Our failures and our regrets by telling us that they're really not that big of a deal and we shouldn't be so hard on ourselves. No, actually, the Bible takes our failures very seriously, more seriously than we take them ourselves. It says that we have a very good reason to regret. But it also gives us a solution. More specifically, it gives us a name. Now that might seem like a strange thing to say, but it's true if you Look at the Bible, all throughout the Bible, when people find themselves in a time of of crisis or failure, when they begin to feel regret or remorse or shame or fear, what do they do? They call upon the name of the Lord. It's a pattern that goes back, all the way back to Genesis chapter four, Adam and Eve have been expelled from the garden. Cain murdered his brother Abel and humanity has descended further and further to this pit of violence and depravity. And at that time we're told Eve has another son named Seth and Seth has a son named Enosh. And Enosh is a good example of just how badly humanity has messed up. They have failed. They're not who they should be. His name, Enosh's name means frailty and mortal. It's a sign of where humanity has come. And it's at that time, Genesis tells us, in the face of their failure, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's something you see all throughout the Psalter as well, in the Psalms, this emphasis on the name of the Lord. Take Psalm 124, for instance. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Or Psalm 116, the snares of death Encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Or Psalm 20 Some trust in ch- chariots and some trust in horses, but we, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. This pattern continues into the New Testament as well. You know, both the Apostle Peter. And the Apostle Paul, at different times, both of them in their preaching, quote the same words from the prophet Joel. And everyone who calls on what? On the name of the Lord will be saved. But why is that? Why is this the Bible's answer to our failures? Why, when we think on the many reasons that we have to regret the conduct of our lives, Why should we take comfort in the name of the Lord? to answer that question, I want to look at our Old Testament reading from this morning, Exodus chapter 34. And I'd like to begin by setting a little context for what's happening there. you might remember the book of Exodus begins with Moses' early life, begins with his birth, Israel is being oppressed in Egypt and Moses is born. And Moses, it's it's like a fairy tale life. He's supposed to be murdered, but he escapes and he's rescued by the daughter of Pharaoh and he's brought up as a prince. And then when he turns 40, he kills a man and he has to flee Egypt. And he runs to the land of Midian where he becomes a shepherd. That's a pretty big fall in life to go from Egyptian royalty to some tent-dwelling sheep herder. And I have no doubt, he's there for 40 years. For the next 40 years of his life, he's in Midian taking care of animals. And I have no doubt that during that time, he became well acquainted with regret. His life certainly wasn't turning out like he thought it would. And it seems to have affected him. This regret, this failure seems to have affected him pretty deeply because The next time he gets an opportunity to do something great, to go back to Egypt and to help liberate his oppressed people, what does he do? He certainly doesn't act like the proud and confident Egyptian prince that he once was. He hesitates, he makes excuses. I'm not very good with words. I'm not the right man for the job. I'm just gonna mess this up too. God, of course, isn't persuaded by any of Moses' excuses. He doesn't seem to care too much about Moses' regrets and his feelings of inadequacy. But he also doesn't tell Moses, no, Moses, you're being too hard on yourself. You're great at this. You've got it. I believe in you. Go do it. God doesn't say any of that. Instead, he gives Moses two things, a name and a promise when the people ask who sent you, he tells them, you give them this name. I am that I am. I am has sent me to you. And when you begin to doubt, remember this promise that I am and I will be with you. Now, all of that takes place early in the book of Exodus, but it's important to keep it in mind when you get to chapter 34, because once again in chapter 34, we've got this situation of failure and regret. God has brought his people out of Egypt with mighty works, and he brings them out to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, he meets with them in person on the mountain, and he gives them the law, his instructions for how they should live in relationship with him. And what did they do? How did they respond when they get the law? And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They make their resolution. And you gotta gotta give it to them. That is quite a resolution. Imagine if that was your commitment for this next year. In 2023, all the words that the Lord has spoken, I will do. Now, the problem is, turns out the people of Israel have about the same track record of keeping their resolution as that 43%. They barely make it a month. Gets to February, Moses is back up on the mountain getting some tablets, and what do they do? Well, they get together and they just flagrantly violate the very first command they were given about not having any other gods. And the Lord is incensed. And he tells Moses, now let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them. That's a big crisis. Thankfully, Moses intercedes for the people by reminding the Lord of who he is and what he's promised. And then right after that, right after he intercedes, then he makes this curious request. Please, He says to God, show me your glory. Why does he ask for that? This hardly seems to be the right time. I mean, Israel just moments ago was on the verge of being annihilated. Their great covenant with God almost ended before it had even begun. And now, now Moses thinks this is a good time for me to have some private spiritual experience. At least that's how it seems when you first read it. But if you you think about it, actually what he's asking makes a lot of sense. Moses knows what a crisis these people are in. He understands the depth of their failure. He knows what's at stake. And that's precisely why he asks to see God's glory. Because before he goes any further with this people, before he goes with them, this people who royally failed and will no doubt do so again, he needs to know exactly who it is that he's dealing with. Who is God, really? And who will he be when Israel is at their very worst? That's what Moses is asking. Then that's exactly the question that God answers in response. The Lord comes down, he descends, he passes before Moses. And he tells him who he is. He proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That is the name of the Lord. That is who he is and who he is promising to be no matter what Israel does, no matter how well they live into this covenant, no matter if they succeed or they fail in their resolution, he is and he will be a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's a promise. And that name is a promise that for centuries the people of Israel remember what God said and they hold on to it when they face failure and opposition. Now take King David for instance. David is, he's, he's fleeing uh, Saul who's trying to murder him. He's got people betraying him. And then in Psalm 86, what does David say? Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. But you... But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's what David thinks of in his moment of crisis. Centuries later, the people of Israel have just failed once again. They've fallen into rebellion and idolatry and wickedness. And here comes this prophet Micah with a word from the Lord, a word of judgment, but also a message of hope. Micah says, who is a God like ours, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. We know who he is. He will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. When everything went wrong, the people of Israel knew that they could cling to that name. But there is there is one part of the name that should give us pause. I don't know if you caught it. It comes right at the end of what God says to Moses. Right after he talks about his steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, the Lord says, he will by no means clear the guilty. And he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I'm gonna be honest, that line has always bothered me. Not because I think it's not a good thing that God does not overlook iniquity. I would not wanna live in a world where injustice could simply proceed apace with impunity and God never did anything about it. But what about my own iniquity? What about when it's I'm the one who has failed to love God and love my neighbor? What about all the things that I regret from this past year? All the things that I undoubtedly will regret from the year to come. Who will God be to us in our times of failure? Will he be a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love? Or will he be a God who by no means clears the guilty? You know, one of the great blessings of having a lectionary and multiple readings of Scripture in your service is sometimes, sometimes a question gets raised by one of those passages of Scripture that's wonderfully answered by another. I don't know if you noticed, but there's a, especially a common theme between our Old Testament and New Testament reading this morning. Uh, our, our reading from Exodus 34 tells us about when God meets with Moses and proclaims his name. Our reading from the Gospel of Luke tells us about a time eight days after he was born when Mary's little baby is circumcised and given a name. And those names are actually connected to one another. Those names, the one given to Moses on the mountain and the one given to Mary and Joseph by the angel. Because at Sinai, God told Moses who he is and who he will be. But what he left unsaid, what he didn't answer, was the question of how. How can he be a God who both forgives iniquity and by no means clears the guilty? How can he forgive our failures without minimizing them? How can he be kind to us when we don't deserve his kindness? The answer to that question actually comes with the name that was given to that baby. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb, Jesus. You know what that name means? It's a a combination of two Hebrew words, the word yeh or yeho, which is sort of a shortened form of the name of God given to Moses at the burning bush, and the word shua, which is a word for rescue or salvation, yeshua, or in Greek, Jesus, means the Lord saves But saves from what? What does the angel say in Matthew chapter one, verse 21? Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. What Jesus's name means is that the God who spoke to Moses on Sinai doesn't just have compassion on us when we fail. Doesn't just overlook our sins. He rescues us from our failures. He delivers us from our sins. And did you notice what was happening when Jesus was given that name? It took place when he was circumcised. His foreskin was being cut and that little baby was starting to bleed and that's when he was given the name Jesus. Right then at that moment, we see exactly who this baby is and why he was born in the first place. He was called Jesus because in him, the very God who met with Moses came in the flesh to deal with the iniquity and sins of his own people, to deliver them from their sins with his own blood. I don't know what this new year, 2023, I don't know what this new year holds for you. I don't know who you wanna be in the year to come or what you hope to do or what you hope to change. I don't know what you regret from the year that's passed. But I know that you do have your own regrets. I know that you are not yet the person you should be. I know if you're honest with yourself that there may be things that you've done and aspects of yourself that you would just rather not think about. And maybe like me, you're hesitant to make resolutions Maybe you're worried that if you resolve something, you're just not gonna keep it anyway. And you would just really rather not think about those parts of you that need to change. But know this, whether you succeed or fail at your resolutions this year, whatever kind of person you become, whether you stand or fall in 2023, there is one thing you can be absolutely sure of The God who met with Moses on the mountain and who rested as an infant in Mary's arms, he has a name and that name does not change. He is and he will always be merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is Jesus. He will deliver you from your sins. He will rescue you from your failures and regrets. He did not abandon Israel. He will not abandon you. So take heart. Make resolutions. Commit to being the person that he has called you to be. And if you slip, when you slip, don't despair. Just call upon his name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.